existing research on gender and social networks has shown that in patrilocal societies, a woman's ability to form, access, and benefit from her social networks is notably limited. While family members in general impose these constraints on women, the specific role of mothers-in-law in influencing their mobility is not well documented. Given the nuances involved in conducting such a study on the field, it is imperative to choose the right field staff for engaging with the key stakeholders and inform the results with utmost care. Today, we have with us S. Anukriti, economist in the Development Research Group at the World Bank, who will shed light on the challenges involved in undertaking such a study through a conversation with Sakshi Halan, consultant at the World Bank. Hello and welcome to the BTS of Economics Research, Season 1, a brand new podcast brought to you by Women in Econ and Policy. The idea of this podcast was born to launch a platform shedding light on the experiences of female development researchers. In every episode, we will pick a research study and unpack its learnings, challenges and more through a conversation with one of the lead women principal investigators on the project. Today, we will dive into the making of the research paper titled Curse of the Mamiji, The Influence of Mothers-in-Law on Women in India, authored by S. Anukriti, Catalina Herrera Almanza, Praveen Pathak, and Mahesh Karra. The paper studies the extent of social inclusion that young married women face in their husband's home. The data for this study came from a household survey designed to characterize social networks of young married women in the Jaunpur district of Uttar Pradesh. The results were based on a sample of over 650 women who were asked about the peers with whom they discussed issues related to children, finances, health, fertility, etc. The authors found that living with mothers-in-law had a negative effect on the mobility of women and on their ability to form close social connections outside the house. So without any further ado, let's dive right into the episode to hear Anukriti speak to Sakshi about the specifics of the process behind the study and what it potentially means for the advancement of women, their interactions outside the house, and their freedom over their reproductive health. Hi, Anakriti. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time out to have this conversation with us. Uh, How are you doing today? It's actually, thank you. I'm doing fine. uh, And thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I look forward to our conversation today. That's great to hear. So first of all, you know, Curse of the Mamiji, the influence of mothers-in-law on women in India. It's a super catchy title. I think anyone in India reading the title can instantly connect with it in some way or the other. And the paper was such an interesting read. I think it's a very insightful study in terms of unpacking the dynamics of marriage and family relationships in India, and also the implications that they have for family planning, uh, women in child health programs in the Indian context. So I just, I would like to start off with asking you, what inspired you to explore this particular aspect of women's social networks in India? 
thanks for that, Sakshi. And you know, it's interesting how a title we really learned. You know how powerful a title can be of a paper in disseminating the findings to a wide range of audience. So I think that's my one lesson, which I hope everyone else takes from this. That you know, find a good title. It helps. <laughs> So, but, you know, we actually did not start out, you know, when we, this project started by, you know, we did not want to look at the impact of mother-in-law on women's social networks. In fact, the project, this paper came out of the, from baseline survey, which was meant for a much larger project, a very different project, which was about women's social networks. So as part of that, in the baseline, we decided to collect data on women's social networks and who they engage with and who they interact with especially on issues like reproductive health and family planning. So when we started analyzing the baseline data, we realized that women in our sample were very socially isolated. So this study is uh, based in Jaunpur district in Uttar Pradesh. And uh, when we went into the project, we had an you know, expectation or an understanding of how you know, women's social networks might look like because we know you know, the context of Uttar Pradesh from just being in India and just knowing the context through research. But we were really surprised to find the extent to which these, you know, our sample women were socially isolated. So once we had that outcome or that statistic, we really then wanted to figure out what is it that's causing this. And so one of our then, you know, going from that, we really thought of maybe, you know, these are extended family households. And again, as you said, you know, everyone who lives in India knows the context of, you know, families and how in-laws and parents-in-law and mothers-in-law specifically can really be a significant influence on women. So that's how we decided to then explore, is the mother-in-law uh, an influencer here? And then, you know, that's how the sort of the paper came about. Well, that's a very interesting story. And that brings me to my next question, actually. What was the motivation behind choosing Uttar Pradesh and then specifically Jaunpur for, for this study? We, we did not, again, you know, start out by thinking we will do this project in Uttar Pradesh and specifically in Jaunpur. So typically, you know, you start with an idea and then you try to uh, find a context where that's relevant or you know, where you know it's, it's easy to conduct research. So in this case, we had to do primary data collection. So there are you know four sort of PIs involved, and we really wanted to find a context which we knew as well as which you know where our linguistic skills allowed us to actually engage and interact with the sample women. So I'm from North India, so Hindi is my mother tongue. So I always find it much easier to work in contexts where I can speak, you know, with, with, the, with our you know, the respondents and actually have an interaction with the surveyors and numerators and so on. So I think that was one. But then within that you know, Hindi-speaking belt, one has to narrow down where you will do research. So that's where our fourth PI, uh, Praveen Partha, comes in. So he, uh, at that point, was a professor at the Delhi School of Economics in the Geography Department, and he had done previous fieldwork in Jaunpur uh, for his PhD when he was a graduate student. So, you know, that's, we wanted to have a place where, and he's from Jaunpur, so we wanted a place where we really knew the context and, you know, to simplify things, and we narrowed down on Jaunpur through that process, basically. My next question is related more to outcomes and uh, mothers-in-law. So given that family planning and reproductive health are the main outcomes of interest here, how important do you think is the mother-in-law's awareness and knowledge levels of the same? And what do you find in the literature or even existing interventions regarding this information awareness level? 
That's a great question and, you know, something that is a part of my ongoing research. So we know that the mother-in-law is important. You know, there is a lot of literature, especially outside of economics in sociology, anthropology, that has found that, you know, the mother-in-law, especially during the early years of marriage, are can play a huge role. And in fact, in some cases, even a stronger role than the husband, especially, you know, about family planning and reproductive health. Uh, but having said that, we really don't know that much about how exactly is this influence taking place and to what extent is the mother-in-law's own awareness or knowledge or beliefs or perceptions about various issues matter. So, you know, even though we think in, in instinctively that it should matter, one, there isn't that much data. Uh, so the only way one can sort of get some, uh, you know, knowledge of this is through maybe we look at National Family Health Survey and look at women who are relatively older, who may, may be mothers-in-law by the time, you know, they are, let's say, 50. Uh, but other than that, there really isn't that much work. So, you know, from our this project where we found that, okay, mothers-in-law are important, especially in this domain, uh, and there is a lot of uh, discordance in fertility preferences between the mother-in-law and uh, and the daughters-in-law and also the couple. So mothers-in-law typically want many more uh, sons, especially, uh, and also ch children overall than the daughter-in-law herself wants. So if there is this misalignment and the daughter-in-law has relatively low bargaining power with respect to the mother-in-law, then one can, uh, you know, it's not hard to imagine that the mother-in-law's preferences are then going to have uh, a significant uh, role in what the final outcome is for the daughter-in-law. But other than that, you know, there isn't much we know. So in future work, and in fact, we are planning to go back to the same sample. And instead of just interviewing the daughters-in-law and asking them about what they believe their mothers-in-law think uh, or want, uh, we are going to interview the mothers-in-law directly and you know, dig deeper into this question of how much do mother-in-laws know, what their preferences are, uh, do they have certain beliefs which may be incorrect, uh, and why is it that you know we see that in some cases mothers-in-law are uh, enabling daughter-in-laws, for instance, in case of maybe labor force participation, but then there are other contexts where mothers-in-law are a restrictive influence, for instance, on mobility and uh, access to social networks. So stay tuned. Hopefully, you know, in the next few years, we'll have more to say on that. That's that's really great to hear, and I look forward to that uh, research. Um, so I, at this point, I want to transition to the next segment, and I want to ask you more about the field experience. So what are the kind of challenges that you faced in data collection in the study, particularly because of the conservative social environment of Johnpur and also the sensitive nature of the questions? And how, how did you go about tackling these challenges? So I think data collection, especially primary data collection, is always hard. You know, it's uh, you're typically uh, working in a context where maybe you you don't live in, um, and you have to rely on a large team of uh, enumerators, field managers, and you know, so make sure that everybody. So it's one thing to sit in your office and write a questionnaire in English, and then another thing to then actually translate it and 
eventually, you know, the surveyor is going to ask that question in a very uh, potentially a different way to the uh, to the respondent who herself may be facing a lot of different challenges. So I think inherently, you know, this whole process is quite complicated and difficult, but there are some standard things that researchers do to ensure, especially when you are collecting data on sensitive topics like domestic violence or family planning, uh, you know, that you can do. So for instance, we would, uh, all our enumerators and field managers were women in this case, uh, because this project was, as I mentioned, part of a bigger experiment related to family planning. We wanted to make sure that uh, you know, there was no scope for women uh, feeling uncomfortable because they were interacting with uh, male respondent, male surveyors or managers. So that was one. The second is we made sure that when the survey was taking place, uh, the women were alone because, you know, if there are other family members present and we're asking them about these sensitive questions, it can influence the, the responses we receive. So, of course, you know, that's very difficult to obtain. And many times what happened is, uh, we have the surveyors who will start talking to the woman, but then somebody from the family will come and sit next to them or, uh, you know, will just maybe sit in the same room or stand outside and try to listen. And then in those cases, we really have to stop the interview because otherwise, you know, it would not uh, satisfy the protocol that we have. So, you know, then you would have to stop the interview get another appointment and maybe come back another day. And these are, you know, it's, it's not always very easy to do that. So, you know, that's one of the challenges. The other issue is, uh, you know, when you do a baseline and then you want to go and re-interview people after maybe, you know, a year. And again, that's very difficult, you know, because people move um, or maybe, you know, in this context, maybe the husband has migrated and the wife has joined him or maybe the wife is visiting her natal family. So, you know, again, tracking people over time is another challenge. Um, so what we did was we tried to make, you know, three or four attempts to find a person in, uh, and speak to them in person. But if not, we tried to uh, survey them on the phone. So about, I think, 20% of our surveys took place on the phone. But again, you know, you need to plan for it. So when you're doing your original survey, you make sure that you have somebody's phone number, People change their phone numbers, so you know you need to make sure that you no, don't just have that person's number, but maybe you know a few other people in the family. So you really need to think through uh, the whole process as you as you start collecting data. And um, I think the other challenge it did not happen always, but in some cases we really had to speak with you know family members like husbands or maybe elderly men who were you know, who are not very open as you go uh, as a surveyor and say, we want to speak to you, this young daughter-in-law in your household about, you know, various things, they would ask, what do you want to speak to them about? And, you know, once you mention that it's related to family planning and reproductive health, you, you encounter some opposition. So, you know, then you have to train the surveyors to, but because at the same time, you don't want there to be any backlash for the daughter-in-law, uh, because later they may ask her, what did they ask uh, what did you say? And so you really need to design these survey protocols very carefully, keeping in mind that you know you don't want any uh, any harmful consequence for the for the respondents. I think. Thank you. That was that was a very. Uh insightful answer and I think you stressed upon so many important things and especially you know like training of enumerators and ensuring that your survey protocols incorporate the sensitive nature uh, and the sensitive environment of you know where you're working so um, thank you for that and I think that also takes me to my next question what when you were piloting the study, what were some of the lessons that you derived from the pilot study? And if if you could if you could talk about that. 
So I think in any, uh, you know, whenever you have a field project or even just, you know, you want to field a survey, uh, piloting is really important because, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you really need to find the best way to ask a question. And it's not always straightforward. You know, you really need to understand the local language. Maybe, you know, so for instance, when you're asking about family planning methods, right, it seems straightforward to us that in, you know, in English we'll write, oh, which of these methods do you use? And then you say contraceptive pill, IUD, you know, so on. But in the local context, maybe people don't know those methods in the same way, right? If you just translate it into, you know, a, a very standard Hindi uh, term, it may not be something that's that's what known. So what we really had to do was once we were in Jaunpur, uh, we asked our local surveyors to, you know, interact to do these sort of uh, pilot interviews and ask women. And we spoke to ASHA workers uh, we spoke to you know people who are aware of the local context about what are the terms that people use to describe this method. You know, so they they have various terms. So I think that's like a very basic thing that you really need to understand the context to even ask the question. Uh, and that's true for you know. And what you do is when you do a, before even you go to the pilot, when you do the training of the enumerators, they themselves come and tell you that oh maybe you should not ask this question in this way. Maybe it's going to be offensive if you ask them in this way. So maybe you need to ask them in a different way. You know, so all of that is really important, and you can get this input from the the person who's translating your survey. You can get it from the survey firm if you have one. You can get it from your enumerators. And then, of course, you can, you know, do a pilot with some respondents who can give you feedback. Yeah, exactly. Because I think this is something even I have observed in the projects that I've been a part of, that they don't pay enough attention. You don't always pay enough attention on translation. And mm -hmm. you use words that are used in, you know, the Hindi dictionary, but they're not like normal people just don't know these words. And then you and I think it's important to then revise your questionnaire and work on it and correct some of those uh, some of those errors because technically they may be right but they're not right in the context. Right, um, and that's actually one of my you know biggest pet peeves because sometimes when you hire survey firms and they do the translation, it's almost as if you know somebody goes to Google Translate and just translates it for you. Exactly, but that's not the point, right? We really want to make sure that this question is translated to the context where you are going to ask it. So, um, yeah, I pay a lot of attention to, to the translations. And I think you know, your data is only as good as your, you know, how those questions are asked. Right. So um, who were the point, point of contact in the villages that you were working on? Were they um, the local government? Uh, were they mukhyas or the ASHA workers? So typically, you know, when you do this sort of data collection, you, you want... Almost every person, like every important person in the village or in the, you know, the district to sort of know that you're doing this, right? Especially because, you know, in, in many cases, um, you need to be also concerned about the safety of your enumerators. We have young university students who, in this case, were our, respond, our enumerators, right? So if they're going and traveling in these villages and asking questions, we don't want them to be worried about safety or face hostility from people who don't understand what's going on. So what you typically do is, uh, or at least that's what we did was, before we started data collection, we went and met most of the sort of influential people in these uh, villages. So we started by, for instance, meeting with the district collector, um, went to the local police station, you know, in case 
you know, some some incident happens, we want them to know that, you know, we are doing this data collection, uh, uh, you, know, you know, 50 or 20 young uh, uh, surveyors are going to go collect data. And then, of course, you know, when you're going to a village, you you speak to the maybe the panchayat head, uh, you speak to the local ASHA worker. We went and had a session with the, the, the community health center. So you need to sort of, you know, make everyone aware that this is a project which has these objectives because you don't want to you know have uh, you know start collecting data without anyone understanding what the point of it is so the objective of our study was to inform policymakers and you know policymakers are those people you know or people whose lives we are studying so we we do a lot of this you know front loading and uh, setting the stage where you let everyone know so that later then you know there is no issue so so we did a lot of that that's great to hear and how did those, if I could ask, how did those conversations go? Did, was there any sort of backlash from, uh, you know, the uh, the influential people in the village, or were they uh, encouraging of of the study? So interestingly, you know, and thankfully, we did not face any negative feedback. Right, most people were very happy, and in fact, one of the most significant uh, memories for me from this whole exercise was this meeting we had with local ASHA workers. So this was, uh, in fact, almost, I think, at the end of the project when we sort of do a session, briefing, debriefing session where we tell people, you know, okay, what did we do? What are we going to do with the data that we collected? And also just hear from them what they think you know, the, the issues are, the potential solutions are. So, you know, at the local community health center, we had more than 100 ASHA workers who came that day. And, uh, you know, they asked us questions, we asked them questions, and it was a very uh, insightful experience. And, you know, it, it was, it, we both, I think both sides learned from each other because sometimes, uh, you know, we think about something only from our point of view and really don't see, you know, what the problems that maybe ASHA workers are facing. And so, you know, in fact, uh, when we went to that community health center in on the walls, you know, they have these slogans written in paint. And one of the slogans I still remember was saying that, you know, if we want institutional delivery of children, we don't, we need to involve not just the woman, but also her husband and her mother-in-law, you know, so we were happy to see that, that, you know, those things are taking place in policy making as well and sort of, you know, uh, motivated us to continue with this line of research. Yeah, that's very interesting to hear and uh, actually very glad to hear that. And I want to now ask you a more specific question about about the questionnaire. Um, and my question relates to how was the, the prevalence of family planning and visits to the doctors covered in the questionnaire? Uh, was it like in terms of number of children, when to have children, gender preference? And also, was there a mention of sex selection or uh, abortion rights of women in, in the questionnaire itself? The general format of our questionnaires, both at baseline and endline, followed the demographic health surveys. So, you know, I would encourage anyone who's interested in that to look at those modules because those are quite detailed. So we have very detailed sections in our surveys on not just family planning use, but also preferences and, uh, you know, how do you access family planning? Where do you go? So, so a lot of it was modeled based 
on the DHS module for India. Uh, in addition, we added questions that are relevant for our context. So because we, uh, the experiment in, uh, you know, the eventual experiment that we uh, ran was about enabling women to access family planning at a local clinic. So we then, you know, asked a lot of questions at, in the end line on, okay, did you go? Who did you go with? Did you ask anyone to go with you? Uh, for each visit, uh, who did you go with? Did you end up using a method? Which method did you? So it was quite detailed. So uh, as soon as our paper is uh, published, we are going to release the the, the surveys instrument so that everyone can have access to it. Uh, and then in your last question was about uh, sex selection. So we did not directly ask our respondents if they had you know performed sex selective abortions or anything like that. But I think one of the questions in our uh, module on beliefs was about how many women you know, do you think in your village have used sex selective abortion? So interestingly, you know, I, I remember that almost 60% of the women said they don't know. You know, so of course it could be that they had uh, some some sense, but they did not want to say it. Uh, but that was the only question we asked about uh, sex selection because in this particular uh, project, our focus is not really on sex selective abortion. Right, right. And I think, so now I want to move to uh, talking about the analysis and the findings. And I want to ask you, what were some of the most striking findings about the nature of social networks of women in Johnpur? And in what aspects do they confirm with what's in the literature? And where do you find deviations? So I think as I already mentioned once, I think the most striking finding for us was the degree of social isolation that our sample experienced. So we, our sample comprises women who are married, uh, who are 18 to 30 years old, uh, have at least one child and lived in Jaunpur. So for this group, uh, you know, so our results are, may not apply if we looked at older women who, you know, may have lived in that village for much longer, face fewer constraints from their families. Uh, but for this sample of young married women who have, you know, moved into their husband's family, which likely is in a different village from their own, uh, it was, was very striking to us. And, you know, it's not surprising because we find significant, you know, mobility constraints. So very few women in our sample are allowed to go out uh, of their homes alone, you know, whether it is to go to a health center, go to the market, visit family and friends, you know, so when you have that degree of, uh, you know, constrained mobility, it's not surprising that your social networks are really going to basically comprise people you live with. Uh, and, you know, with, so that was about, you know, people who you interact with. But when we zoomed in into, you know, who do you speak to about your, you know, personal private matters like family planning and reproductive health, we found that an average woman spoke to one other person besides their husband and mother-in-law. You know, so that's, I mean, if we imagined the lives we have lived during the pandemic where we really have been stuck at home um, and mostly interacting with the world through um, in virtual means, you know, uh, these women are essentially living that life all the time. They don't really have access to cell phones as much potentially. They don't work. So it's, it's you know, your world is sort of revolves around just your family members. So that was, you know, striking to me. And then the second striking part was that, uh, you know, we asked them not just about people in their district, but also you know, interactions with their natal family. You know, because it's possible that maybe you interact more about family planning with your mother and your sisters rather than, 
you know, people in your uh, uh, married family. But we found that, you know, that was not the case. Even when we allowed the, the you know, the extent to uh, include people outside your district, we found that that really did not increase uh, the, nat- the network size for these women. So I think that was sort of the most striking finding for me that, you know, the extent of social isolation that women experience. And in terms of um, what whether it confirms, so when we started this project, uh, there wasn't that much in the literature on women's social networks. Since then, recently, you know, another paper has come out from rural Orissa, and they also collected data on women's networks. And they again find that even in rural Orissa, young uh, mothers have very you know, constrained network sizes. So that's consistent. But when we compare our findings with what people have found in high-income countries or even in some sub-Saharan African context, uh, the network sizes in, in the Indian context are much smaller. So one of our sort of you know conclusions from this is that we just need more data because maybe this is what we find in rural Uttar Pradesh and rural Orissa, but there is maybe urban areas are different, maybe other parts of India are different. And maybe rest of the world is, you know, different. So I think we just need more data on women's social networks to to say more. I, yes, I think you also touched upon some very key uh, points, which uh, I'd like to, you know, ask you uh, some follow-up questions on. Uh, one is that you mentioned that women did not actually. Ha- um, like the level of uh, contact with their natal families wasn't very high. Do you think that could also be because of the low ownership of mobile phones and also, you know, besides the restrictions from the mother-in-law that you can't, you know, go out and visit your um, maternal homes? Because, you know, even if you can't physically go out when women do have mobile phones, you're still able to maintain that contact. And maybe women also have more trust in their uh, connections from, you know, pre, from pre-marriage, from uh, pre-marriage connections. So w- what do you think about that? Yes. So, so we did collect data on women's cell phone ownership. So we first asked them, uh, do you have a cell phone of your own? And, you know, interestingly, 75% of our samples said they did, right, which is much higher than what wow. we see on average um, in, in the Indian context. But what was, you know, the, the next question was, you know, a bit more informative because we asked them, you know, how able are you to charge your phone whenever you need it, right? So because it's one thing to have a phone, but then another to actually be able to use it. And in, when we ask that question, that's when, you know, we see that only like I think a third of our sample is able to charge their phone or, you know, put data in it or you know, minutes in it as when they need it or when they want it, you know. So, and in fact, women who live with a mother-in-law are significantly less likely to not only own a cell phone, but also be able to charge it. So I think it's both are important, you know, and it is the case that women who are able to operate a phone as they want, which is they have the ability to charge it, do have, uh, you know, larger social networks. But uh, it's conditional on not living with the mother-in-law. If you live with the mother-in-law, that effect actually weakens. So, so the mother-in-law is sort of preventing you from having a usable phone. And uh, that's one sort of conclusion. And the second is that it's not just having a phone. It's actually being able to use it that is important. And then thirdly, it, if you do have a phone that you can use, you are significantly more likely to have uh, uh, you know, people outside your household with whom you connect. That's really interesting. And I think you do highlight a very important aspect that ownership and use are two very different things. And 
there can be a very big gap between the two and now i want to ask you more about the technical side of the paper and uh i'd like to ask you how did you approach and refine your instrumental variable strategy and if you could tell us more about that process because i found it very interesting and i think to connect like pure effects and the when you use that interaction term with proportion of women uh, in the same caste group and interact that with whether you reside with your mother in law or not i found that very interesting and I, i was like where how did that how did you come to that sure so it it wasn't that straightforward uh, you know we did not just come up with it you know one day uh, i think in general finding instruments is very hard and unless you know you have a very straightforward source of policy variation or you know some program which you know make some people get something and others don't it's very difficult to come up with instrumental variables so as i said you know originally we did not really start out writing this paper with that you know objective in mind we were we started analyzing our social networks data and then we found that okay this you know mother in law co-residence is a significant correlate of women's uh, number of peers so but then you know as as economists who are trained in uh, causal Uh, approaches you then think okay is this just correlation or you know can we say that there is a causal interpretation so given our data constraints we did not have much information on uh, you know it's, so typically people use uh, maybe the, uh, the breaking of the extended household or maybe the death of uh, a patriarch or a matriarch as instruments to see that the co-residence is then you know exogenously affected but we did not have access to uh, you know such data so we really had to come up with you know an innovative way to find an instrument and um, so the starting point was uh, you know this uh, how many people in your village belong to the same uh, caste as you so there is a lot of literature on india which emphasizes the importance of caste networks um and you know this and for anyone who has lived in india or works in india this should not be surprising that caste really moderates a lot of social interactions that people have so you know so the so that sort of led us to okay let's look at the uh, the proportion of women in your village that belong to your caste uh and we used village as sort of the reference point because you know that's sort of much easier uh, you know to access as compared to in the district so but you know given once we have that we really still wanted to know because it could be that if you live in a village where a lot of women are in your caste uh, are from your caste that can then you know directly impact uh, your access to networks or your 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 outcomes it doesn't have to you know go through the mother in law so we wanted to sort of since our prior research background research has shown that the mother in law acts as a gatekeeper then even if you have this access that whether you can access those people will be sort of determined by your mother in law so the interaction sort of came in as a way to sort of capture the effective network size that is available to you because if you live with the mother in law irrespective of how many women from your caste you have in the village you are potentially less able to access them than someone who is from your caste but does not live with the mother in law so that was our thinking process uh, behind that instrumental variable Thank you for that answer that was uh, very interesting to know and i want to now move on to the discussion the the part of the paper that talks about 
the different channels of peer effects. And you mentioned two channels, information diffusion and peer support through companionship. So could you expand on those channels? Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, if bulk of the uh, social networks literature actually emphasizes the information diffusion part, that's a very standard thing that networks do. So networks benefit their members in numerous ways. And, uh, you know, a most commonly studied approach is that information diffuses to the network. Recently, there's a paper on um, on gossip, for instance. You know, gossip is essentially when information goes from one person to another. And you can study how, you know, if there are some central nodes in a network, maybe starting information through that node is going to it faster or to more people than if you randomly you know started the information diffusion from some other part of the of the network so there's a lot of work on that and you know we know that agricultural technology uh, spreads through information diffusion there is social learning so you learn by watching learn by seeing others and learn you know learning by doing in addition to that so you know that is a very standard thing but in addition what we are finding in this project is that peers, yes, inform you and you know provide you information and maybe uh, update your beliefs about what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. But in addition, in a context where women are heavily reliant on other people's physical companionship to go to places outside the home, peers can do this more fundamental thing, right? So if uh, in our sample, I think very few women are able to have visited a, fa- a family planning clinic alone. And we asked them, why do you not go alone? So there are many reasons. You know, one of them is that they're not allowed to go alone. Uh, but even if they're allowed to, the they, are, they have a lot of uh, concerns due to uh, low confidence. So they do not feel comfortable engaging with uh, a doctor or a nurse by themselves. Uh, they fear safety concerns, so they may not want to go out alone because you know they fear they may face sexual harassment. Um, and they also fear social stigma because in many of these rural parts, it is not considered an appropriate thing for a woman, young woman to go out alone. Uh, so you know, given all that, you then essentially are dependent on your husband and your mother-in-law to, or somebody in your family to go with you to a place, right? And if these other people have different preferences than you, if the mother-in-law does not want you to use family planning or wants you to have more children, then you can see how that that effectively means that you will not be able to go, right? So if, if there is such a huge dependence and reliance on uh, husbands and mothers-in-law who have different preferences and different incentives, then for women to and you know so, and if they cannot go alone then you really need the company of maybe your sisters in law or maybe your female friends so in that sense the peer effects in our case can also operate not just through the information they provide you but the fact that you can together go to a clinic and find it much easier to maybe talk to a nurse with somebody who is you know sort of your supporting person rather than somebody who prevents you from accessing family planning that's very interesting. And I'm also wondering whether, you know, how mothers-in-law feel about the about the woman going to these family clinics with her, with her friend, because they're not allowed to uh, go to these clinics by themselves. But what do these, what do the mothers-in-law feel about uh, a companion approach, uh, you know, uh, taking uh, a friend, taking uh, the daughter-in-law? to the clinics do they have do they do they restrict the women even then or is that what what do you think about that 
So in general, women's social interactions, even with other women, are heavily monitored and constrained by the husbands and mothers-in-law, right? So in a, if you look at DHS data and NFHS data for all of India, uh, there's a significant number of men who insist on knowing where the wife is at any given point in time. And, uh, you know, they closely guard even whether they interact with their female friends. So, you know, just because it's other women is not always straightforward that, you know, women will be allowed. And these restrictions become much stronger when interactions with non-family members are concerned because, you know, there is this strong emphasis on it's okay if you are engaging with your sister-in-law, but maybe not with, you know, outside women. So what in this, the bigger project that I mentioned, um, and maybe we'll talk about it at another point, you know, we designed these interventions which enabled women to access family planning clinics with uh, female peers. And what we find in that project is that the female peers who actually went with you are more likely to be sisters-in-law and also female friends. But the sisters-in-law are significantly more likely to go rather than the female friends. And I think part of it comes from the fact that, uh, you know, you face, you face less resistance from your um, mother-in-law and your husband, maybe when you're going with a family member, a female family member, as compared to when you go out with a maybe female neighbor or a female friend. Uh, so, you know, those, it's just much easier to navigate that system uh, with a family member as opposed to, uh, you know, non-family member. So I think sisters-in-law can be a big ally in, uh, you know, in navigating this intra-household relationship with the mother-in-law. Right. But also if, you know, the sisters-in-law have the same, if their, uh, if not their preferences, but if they're uh, going as, you know, representing the mothers-in-law and the husbands and the preference, there is a misalignment of preferences in the family, then it's kind of like the mother-in-law is going with you, you know, in, sure. in effect. Yeah. And also, you know, not just that, but also the, there may be competition within sisters-in-law for resources and for status within the household, right? So this is like, you know, there is a, a, a recent very nice paper on polygamous households, and they show how the rivalry between wives leads to higher fertility because, you know, maybe your status within the household is determined by how many children you have, right? So it could be that there is actually a lot of competition between sisters-in-law, so that may in fact lead to greater friction as opposed to, you know, more cooperation. But again, we need to study these things. You know, there's very little work on trying to understand intra-household dynamics between household members that are not just the couple. So all of, you know, the family economics literature predominantly looks at nuclear family structures and only thinks about the interactions between the within the couple, which yes is important, but as you know, our context shows us that these other actors like in-laws, um, mothers-in-law, sisters-in-law, fathers-in-law do play a huge role. So whether in which context is the sister-in-law an enabler, in which context is she, uh, you know, a gatekeeper or a representative of the mother-in-law, um, is something that we really need to study more. Right. And as you said, you know, we need to collect more data. We need to know more about the status quo. I want to now move on to concluding our conversation. And I want to ask you, what do you think are the policy implications of these findings in terms of policy design? And you have hinted on that during the course of our conversation. Uh, but I also want to ask you, to what extent do you think policy can make a dent in these deep-rooted structural nature 
of you know these relationships as opposed to the general uh, economic progress and women participating in the workforce as opposed to those factors yeah that's a great question and something i've been thinking a lot about so at a very fundamental level i think one lesson we draw from our uh, work is that uh you know we need to really take into account these other household members when we are designing interventions as well as evaluating the impact of interventions or programs it, it could be that you know you have a very well intentioned program but it overlooks how the mother in law will either perceive you know that program or will prevent the daughter in law from accessing it or maybe she's actually going to be a supportive influence right so programs can be less effective or more effective depending on the nature of the program uh, you know and, and and that needs to be taken into account both at the design stage as well as at the evaluation or monitoring stage when we are in, you know estimating the impact for various programs so i think that's the uh, first lesson the second is i think you know more related to um, what policy makers can do if there is some sort of uh, restrictive influence of the mother in law so to do that we need to understand where is this you know what what underlies this behavior from the mother in law is it a matter of her preferences are simply different uh, or is it that maybe she has incorrect beliefs or incorrect perceptions so you know hypothetically speaking maybe the mother in law thinks that family planning is harmful for the daughter in law's health right so if she has this belief maybe that's what is leading to her uh, preventing the daughter in law from using family planning but if that's the case then one can design programs that inform the mother in law and maybe correct her uh beliefs so there's a lot that we need to do in trying to understand what underlies you know these behavior patterns uh maybe it's it's a matter of a social norm maybe the social norm in the mother in law's um reference group is very different and maybe you know what we need to do is uh target the mother in law if we want to change the daughter in law's outcomes uh and only targeting the daughter in law may not be enough so this is very uh, similar to you know what a lot of uh policy making is doing with respect to involving husbands in in decisions right so there are husband clubs uh when we now talk about intimate partner violence it's not just enough to empower the woman maybe we also need to involve the husband if he is the perpetrator of violence so the same approach can be brought to the mother in law daughter in law relationship where we uh not just target the daughter in law but also involve the mother in law in this more holistic approach right and these are very important policy implications and that's why it was very encouraging to hear that uh, you mentioned that in one of the clinics there was a poster on the wall that said that uh, that talked about this and that stressed on the importance of you know uh, informing the mothers in law and involving them in this in this mm-hmm. process right uh, and in so, fact you know during that same visit we learned that at some point the state government had initiated saas bahu sammelan and the saas bahu sammelan is basically a place where you a mother in law and daughter in law can come together and then you know i guess go through some sort of an information provision system but i don't know what happened to them whether they are still being used you know so that's something that i would be very interested in finding more about yeah that's interesting to hear actually so that also you know brings me to my next question which is these patterns differ as you move across india across north india south india and the nature of these relationships can also 
you know, change from being less restrictive to even more restrictive. So have you thought about conducting this study in another setting, maybe in an urban setting or in another state in India? And how would you expect the results to change? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would love to, you know, do this sort of a data collection exercise in as many parts of India as possible and then then compare them because that's essentially when you learn, you know, what are the drivers if, you know, observe these cross-sectional differences in patterns. So some of it is, of course, you know, constraints based on budget and in terms of your time, but I have thought about it and I'm hoping that in future we can do this. A very easier, much easier way to, you know, sort of, uh, do this would be if one of the large scale surveys that we have IHDS or you know even DHS if you know we can add a very simple question that measures uh, women's networks right so if if we can do that then you know we will immediately get uh, large scale nationally representative data so you know those are sort of the two ways one we can go about it my sense is you know again we see a lot of this divide I mean I would expect that women in urban India are maybe more uh, less socially isolated maybe because they have better access to uh, virtual means of communication maybe they face less mobility restrictions uh, so, you know, that would mean that their access to networks may be stronger. On the other hand, we also see that, uh, you know, female labor force participation is actually lower in urban India than in rural India. So maybe, you know, that is a, a sort of counter negative influence on, on the size of networks. But my sense is in terms of geography that we may see more again of this north-south divide that we often see in, uh, on gender gaps in India. Uh, where maybe women in the northeast and south maybe may have better uh, networks than than women in northwest India, but it's it's an open question, and we need more data. Right, we do we do need more data on so many of these fronts. I want to ask you next, and you know the final question of like this conversation: What is next in store in the social networks line of research? And you have talked about some of the research that is ongoing, but what are some of the questions that you want to tackle next, if there's anything that we didn't cover through this conversation? So there is a lot, actually, we need to, uh, we're just sort of starting to dig the surface. Uh, so personally, you know, as I mentioned, this other experiment that we ran, so we have, we are soon going to come out with the paper on that. So, you know, that tries to, so a bulk of the social networks literature on women has been focused on self-help groups and women's collectives, say microfinance groups, right? So that's one way women have been connected with other people and especially other women uh, in, in, in most developing countries. But if you look at the national data on India and how many women are part of a collective, it's pretty low. You know, so while it's a very important uh, policy tool and it, it has been shown to expand women's networks and empower them in a lot of different ways, that's just one tool. So I think we really need to figure out in context where women are isolated, how can we prevent, how can we reduce it and how can we connect women with other people outside their household members. Uh, and one approach that we test in this, this new study is maybe we can somehow enable women to incentivize other women to engage with them. So in this context, we were talking about access to family planning clinics and we gave women uh, a voucher uh, which subs to access subsidized services, not just for themselves, but also they could offer it to other women who went with them. So, you know, it, it, this basically sort of is saying that the woman is now able to incentivize a peer to accompany her to the clinic. So, you know, that's just one 
uh, approach in that particular context. But more broadly, we need to think about more innovative solutions to uh, expanding women's networks. And then I think the second part of this would be to understand what whether there are gender differences in network formation, uh, you know, do men and women approach this differently? And are the benefits that women get from networks different from what men get? And uh, you know, are then, again, the implications of this for network formation uh, different by gender? So the bulk of the literature looks at social networks uh, in a very non-gender way. So we... Uh, you collect data either from the household head about the household's networks, or maybe we are surveying male farmers about their agricultural networks, but we really don't uh, you know, collect much data on the differences between men's and women's network-related characteristics. So I think that's another aspect of research that excites me right now. Thank you for that answer. And I'm looking forward to your future and upcoming research. It all sounds very fascinating, very interesting, and has very important implications for policy. So that brings us to the end of the conversation on the study. We do have a few minutes left. So before you go, I want to ask you two questions. First is, if you had to name three uh, women researchers or social scientists that you look up to, who have been your inspiration, who would you name? So I think uh, different people have inspired me at different points in time. I guess I can uh, name three. So the first person I would name is uh, Professor J.V. Minakshi. She was my professor at Delhi School of Economics when I did my um, MA there. And I, I remember I, I took one course that she taught on applied econometrics, and I wrote a term paper uh, on estimating the demand functions for, I think, tobacco demand. And that was the first time I did you know, research-related stuff and wrote my own paper, and I think that was the point at which I started loving research. And I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And so, you know, I think she was a, form, a huge formative influence for me at that stage and which has continued. So I would definitely, uh, you know, name her. After that, I think the second person would be Carla Hoff. So she was, um, uh, until very recently, uh, in the research group at the World Bank. And now I think she is a professor at uh, Columbia University. So I, when I was in my grad school uh, one summer, worked with her as a research assistant in Rajasthan. And so we were doing this. She was conducting an experiment on stereotype threats uh, with school children in Rajasthan. And I was, you know, like any graduate RA uh, with her in the field and, you know, went and did this data collection. And, you know, so that was, again, the first time I sort of saw research in action and people, you know, doing data collection and how it could be tied to, you know, the, the research question that they're trying to answer. And so that was, again, another, you know, significant uh, moment of learning for me, which has you know, kept me going. And then more recently, I would uh, point out Rohini Pandey. I think she has been, again, another person who has been hugely influential, uh, not only through how, what she does in her research, but also, you know, outside of research, uh, she, she, you know, lays a lot of emphasis on mentoring women um, in academia and especially in economics. So, you know, I would name these three people as my, uh, as people I look up to. That's nice to hear. And my second question is, is there something you'd like to say to the young scholars diving into feminist research today, early in their careers? 
I think, I mean, a lot of people, I'm very happy to see that there are a lot of, uh, you know, young uh, women who are coming into research and are very passionate and driven. So I'm very happy to see that happening. And I mean, I really say, just go for it, you know, do what you want to do, especially, you know, you, you'll realize as you go through the PhD process and then either go into academia or research of a different kind, uh, that there are many things that can sort of dampen that initial enthusiasm that you join a field with. And unfortunately, I think that happens with any field or profession that you're in. So there will be pressures to publish. There will be pressures to you know respond to referees, grant applications to write. So then there'll always be these sort of roadblocks that can uh, you know, overshadow that initial reason why somebody gets into research because they want to they want to make a change. Uh, so I think it's very important to keep that you know that drive uh, very uh, safe and secure. You know, never lose that initial focus or the reason why you are in something. You know, there'll always be things that uh, come that you need to do because you have to do them. But if you can really closely guard that enthusiasm and uh, drive, I think that will take people a long way. Guarding that enthusiasm and drive, I think you've ended it on such a great note and that's very encouraging to hear. So that brings us to the end of this episode and thank you so much Anukriti for taking out the time and joining us and this was such an enriching so discussion. No, it's been a great chat and I look forward to you know continuous engagement on this. Thank you so much for having me. And we look forward to all the research that is going to come in the future and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much and all the best. That brings us to the end of our episode. Before we end, we would like you to take a moment and think about the relationships you have in and outside your homes and evaluate whether the routine, mundane banter that is almost like the background noise in our everyday lives reveals something significant for women. You can find the links to all the papers, books and articles mentioned in the show notes. Our episodes will be available on Apple, Spotify and other podcast mediums. Make sure to follow us on Twitter to get more updates on the next episode. Our Twitter handle is at WeConPaul. Tell us what you thought about the show by writing to us at womeninpolicyecon at gmail.com. See you in the next episode.